What up, HyperChange? Welcome to another episode. This week's Sunday scheme, and today we're going to start off with Tesla's impact report. Um, it's the 2020 impact report, which makes it sound a little late, right? But not. Nah, this is the most cutting edge stuff. Um, every year or for the past couple years, Tesla's released this what's so-called impact report. Sort of um, when you t think about typical ESG, you know, environmental and social governments, this big governance, this big buzzword that gets thrown around for companies, you know, it's not just about our profits, it's not just about our people, but it's about the impact we're having on the planet and how our company, um, you know, every everything from our products to our factories, you know, what is the total emissions of that and how are we thinking about reducing that from sort of systems level approach. So super important trend. And I think this is a huge trend in finance that the world has been waking up to this ESG movement. Um, but Tesla, you know, not only do their products sort of take us into the electric age and create this amazing technology to make us go green and sustainable, but they're also leading the charge in the reporting and, and sort of the uh, documentation of their entire company's ESG initiatives and go way above and beyond. And so for the past couple of years, they've been putting out this incredible PDF report, um, which documents all of the stuff they're doing, literally like the water usage of their factories per vehicle, the total emissions from, you know, producing the car, the emissions um, of while using the car, depending on whether you're burning, you know, coal or, or solar powered of your car, you know, how much emissions are, is it for a rideshare vehicle? So literally going through every step of the process. Um, and this is a 94 page document this year that I just got my hands on yesterday. So I haven't had time to go through it. We're gonna go talk about a couple of the highlights, but um, I'm gonna put a link below. I mean, this is incredibly well done. Tesla like tripled down on this project this year and put even more work and thought into it. Um, and I think it's really, really interesting. I'll, I'll just read a couple of the uh, starting lines so you can get a flavor for it. Um, the objective of an environmental, social, and government's ESG impact report is to disclose the impact a company has on these areas, as well as to present to the extent possible data and other information qualifying and quantifying that impact. At Tesla, we strive to be the best on every metric relevant to our mission to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. In order to maximize our impact, we plan to increase it. We plan to continue increasing our production volumes and accessibility of our products. In more concrete terms, and this is actually where it's like, damn, this, they're dropping some real clues here. In more concrete terms, this means that by 2030, we're planning to sell 20 million electric vehicles per year compared to 0.5 million in 2020. So the next decade, they want a 40X uh, increase in production, which we know is kind of the thing, but if you're holding Tesla, you know, think about this as an amazing growth stock. It's like, wow, these are the numbers that should get you excited. Um, 20 million cars a year make them like one of the world's largest, if not the world's largest auto manufacturer. Um, there's about 100 million cars sold a year. So if Tesla sells 20 million, that's 20% of this new annual global fleet that Tesla would own. That's 20% of this global market share, assuming no growth. So that's kind of the pie in the sky number. You know, if you're thinking about Tesla as the stock or the company, uh, the backbone of this of this bull valuation that takes us to several trillion dollars, maybe even without autonomy, just by selling these vehicles, um, is is the 20 million number. And so it's insane. And I love that they put that in there. Also, and this is another good clue, as well as deploy 1500 gigawatt hours of energy storage per year compared to three gigawatt hours in 2020. So that would be even more than a 40x increase. That's like 500x increase in the amount of energy storage deployed. So, you know, when Tesla and Elon Musk continue to reiterate that the energy storage business and batteries are gonna grow much faster than vehicles, they're putting that in here too. So incredibly uh, detailed report. Um, like th they have this front page that goes through some of the highlights here. Um, I just wanna highlight this because I still get messages and DMs on Twitter about like, do you know that if your Tesla's using coal, it's actually gonna be worse for the environment and this is why we shouldn't, you know, do Teslas. And they're like young people that are sending me this message. And I'm like, oh my God, like, I can't believe there's still so many misconceptions that like electric vehicles, even if they're charged with the current status quo of the grid and your grid is like heavily relying on fossil fuels, um, are still way better um, than the status quo. And then that like is victim to the number one rule that is like kind of hindering, it's just the number one logic that stops people from thinking about EVs, which is the stagnation fallacy. Random term I invented, but I think it's so important of like, 
you can't assume the grid is always going to be fossil fuels because it's and it's stagnating at that mix of this much coal this much natural gas this much solar which even so already makes it better to have an electric car than a normal car but the the new grid mix is changing rapidly towards renewables and this trend is just accelerating and if you look at the past estimates of like all these official reports they were way too low so you've actually seen an, and this is like really really good news um for the world despite you know all the wildfires and all this crazy stuff is happening you know the deployment of wind and solar is rapidly accelerating and they're like the most cheap ways to create new energy like if you're going to create a new project you are gonna to wanna to do it with wind and solar. And even more so exciting is Bitcoin, which people say is you know ruining the planet with its energy consumption, is actually accelerating the adoption of those renewable energy projects by giving them that unique energy buyer um, to accelerate the ROI of that solar project to make it easier to finance and get it done. So lots of exciting stuff happening there with the change in grid mix, but they, they have this really simple chart. And I love how Tesla just boils it down to literally one chart. Average life cycle emissions in the US um, and grams of CO2 emitted per mile um, you can see the average mid-size premium ICE vehicle is at 400-something. Um, and actually, it's worth noting that in, in the front page of this, they talk about how a lot of this is underreported. Um, finally, it is important to note that the current ESG evaluation methodologies tend to use a generic template to analyze every manufacturing company's carbon footprint vehicle use phase, which realistically accounts for 89% of total emissions, including in scope 3 of ESG reporting, is repeatedly underreported. If you think about a gas car, this is when they're literally like burning the gas, right, to, to go. That's the, the vehicle use emissions. And that's the big misconception of electric vehicles. Like, yeah, it's a little bit more carbon intensive to create the car, but then over the life cycle of the car, you're saving huge amounts of energy during the use phase. And during these ICE cars, you're, uh, you know, it's a way a little bit less carbon intensive to create because you don't have this huge battery, but then you're constantly refilling oil into that car. And that's where over the life cycle, over that, you know, 10-year ownership or whatever your ownership of the vehicle you have, um, it's going to be way more polluted uh, all things considered to use that gasoline car. I feel like I'm, I'm like, I'm preaching in the choir here. Why am I even saying this? But that is what it is. So, and I, but I, what I didn't know is, um, as, and that's 80 to 90% of those total automotive emissions. As the use phase reporting guidelines remain vague, OEMs often use unrealistic assumptions for lifetime mileage and unrealistic fuel consumption figures rather than real world figures. As a result, it's not uncommon for the carbon footprint of the use phase to be underreported by up to 50%. So I think, um, that it's really interesting and Tesla goes about how their estimates use real-world mileage and real-world energy consumption data sourced from our fleet of over 1 million cars on the road to calculate green emissions and savings. We believe that reporting the use phase emissions based on real-world fleet data should become an ESG standard. So I think what they're saying here is even though we look way better than the ICE cars on this chart already. It's actually even the gap's even bigger than you would expect um, because of the ICE vehicles underreporting, so to speak. So the average midside premium ICE car versus the Model 3 using the grid charging, as you can see, it's actually, I was, I was even kind of a little off there. The manufacturing phase is almost about the same um, between the Model uh, 3 and the average midsize ICE car, just slightly more, you can barely see it. But then over the use of that vehicle, even assuming it's charged from the grid with its current mix, you're looking at you know less than 200, so greater than 50%, almost 60% um, less gram CO2 emitted per mile. So that's that's over the life cycle of the vehicle, you're going to emit one third as much of the CO2. So a huge, huge gain. So we could even triple the vehicle fleet if they all go electric, and assuming the grid doesn't change, and we'd still be putting out the amount of the same CO2 in the atmosphere. So this is a game-changing, needle-moving. It's not just better in a little bit of ways, but actually better in a huge amount of ways. Um, and they also go on to talk about how eventually the lowest one here on the left looks like around 30 which would be about one tenth even 
or less, maybe 1 15th of the total emissions of the average ICE car of a Model 3 used for ride sharing charged off solar. So this is where the stagnation fallacy comes into play yet again. Like Tesla's not stopping where they are now. They're constant, not only are they, you know, three times as good from grams of CO2 a mile today, but they're planning to get, you know, 15 times as good. Um, so that's an insanely uh, ambitious and awesome goal here where your Model 3 with ride sharing usage, you know, our cars are empty 90% of the time, 95% of the time. If we can reduce that because you're renting out, the people who own the cars are renting them out for rides and you're charging it off solar energy, you're gonna be looking at 15 times less energy usage. So um, incredible, and we all kind of know this, but I always think it's super important to reiterate, like, let's keep looking at the numbers, let's keep looking at the data to make sure whatever we're, we're trying to tackle this transportation problem with is the best way. And so huge news right there. The other thing I wanted to mention, which is super epic, which makes me feel a lot better as a Tesla owner, is capacity retention of the Tesla batteries averages 90% after 200,000 miles of usage. So that means, and they have this incredible chart, and once again, this is real fleet data, like the integrity of the data that Tesla has, and you could say I'm a fanboy and I'm biased, but I've just over time watched them do this, and then you have like companies like Volkswagen do diesel hate. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? Um, and you know, talk about lying on your reporting. You know, that's why I don't trust anything like Volkswagen and Porsche do. And it's like, think about the company ethos you'd have to have that have a coordinated scam like Dieselgate. Like, that that just doesn't go away. And it's like, yeah, Volkswagen's pushing with the ID4, and you know, their you know their new charging network. But it's like, to me, there's something really important about your corporate culture and DNA. And Tesla's corporate culture and DNA is like science, engineering, facts, like the truth and, and trying to figure out problems from like first principles approach and doing what's best from the systems level and kind of honesty, frankly. And I think that's not in the DNA of any other automaker. Um, I mean, look at the way they talk about electric vehicles, this electric vehicles are nothing until Tesla succeeds. Now we're gonna do electric vehicles, but then they never come through on their promises. Like it's just all bullshit. And so I think it's so ironic that the narrative in the media and the Tesla Q is that Tesla is, is the one not to trust with bullshit claims and reporting when in reality that's actually every other automaker so yeah i just think that's insane and anyway point being here is that was another big piece of tesla flood it's like wait like how fast is the battery going to be great i'm going to need to replace my battery every so that like you always find that guy at a dinner dinner party who's like <laughs> right like who's like yo like i know i've done my research in lithium and you're gonna have to replace that battery it's gonna cost ten thousand dollars right like this is one of the biggest pieces of tesla fud but actually and this is why i did an interview a while ago with the guy from tesla raul who's this was such a dope interview um because he had operated like the longest mileage he, even though this was like over a year ago he had already had tesla's like four hundred thousand miles of range right and so he was already showing that the battery degradation on those was like 85% or 90%, like very little, even over hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles. Um, that not just the battery not degrading, but the maintenance cost, the drivetrain, all of the parts of the vehicle were holding up incredibly well. And so I actually, with Sean Mitchell in Los Angeles, he rented like this Tesla Model X and drove me around. I think it might've been a Tesla car, but it had like the longest amount. Of, it was like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles, but it worked great and it was, it was perfect. So now more and more data is coming out about how incredible Tesla keeps their battery. And this is why, once again, people are gonna say, oh, don't buy, you know, look at the Leaf, look at the Rivian, look at the GM. Well, those are very unproven battery technologies for uh, capacity retention over time. And I think Tesla, you know, if I'm gonna buy an EV that I wanna think about as an investment, like everybody who has a Leaf, like the, the battery on the Leaf, like sort of degrades like so quickly. And so it's like, I don't know, I, you know, they have like a third of the range left after a few years, like it's barely usable. Like there's no way you're going on a road trip with that. The range numbers aren't reliable. And yes, Tesla has that problem too. The range degrades and like they say it's a 300 mile range car. It's really like 200 or 250, depending on how you drive it. But it's even much worse for every other electric vehicle. So so I think these numbers from Tesla um, that here that show that it hits about 90% capacity 
capacity retention. So your car with, you know, 300 miles of range, let's say it will still have 270 miles of range after 200,000 miles. And so more and more data is coming out about this. And if you think about the stagnation fallacy here, this is data from Tesla's older fleet of vehicles. And as the new technology gets better, the 2170s that are in my Model Y are probably fire, right? Because they've been making those for a long time, Panasonic's nailing it down. This data with 200,000 cars were the early Teslas. So I think this is only improving. So this is once again, bucking a huge uh, FUD trend. And then their upcoming factories will set a new standard for low energy and water, water usage per vehicle, um, water withdrawal intensity in vehicle manufacturing in meters cubed per vehicle. Pretty interesting. Um, and as you can see, they have Tesla in 2020, BMW getting major props here, being the only company ahead of Tesla, but Tesla already ahead of the curve. And you have to remember that this is with the factory in Fremont that they took over from GM and Toyota. They didn't build from scratch. So a lot of issues there and Tesla's team wasn't great at building factories yet. So as the pace of innovation accelerates and Tesla's productizing the factory gets better, their water energy usage per vehicle is gonna decrease. And so Gigafactory, uh, Texas, and then Berlin will have um, it looks like Berlin is gonna be like setting up by far a new standard for water usage per vehicle. Another interesting trend is they talk about how much um, cumulative energy produced by Tesla solar panels versus consumed by Tesla factories. I love this. So you think about Tesla systems approach. I mean, they're putting solar, even though we don't think of their solar business as huge, this chart shows you that even though they're ramping factories and building all these factories around the world, the amount of solar energy that their solar panels are producing, it looks like from this chart, like five, six, 10X even, um, more energy is being produced from their solar panels than is being consumed by their factories. And so um, that's really awesome too. Another really interesting thing to consider here is the energy efficiency, EPA range in miles per kilowatt. Um, so basically saying like, how big is your pack? how much range are you getting relative to how big your pack is, which is important for a lot of ways. First of all, if your pack is smaller, you can get more out of it. You know, we're doing way more with the raw materials and resources there. So it's like, if we, if Tesla can build the same size battery pack as Volkswagen, but you're getting 40% more range, um, you know, maybe they, you only need 300 miles range, so they can start building a smaller pack and they could be using less raw materials. So that's a really powerful way to think about the sustainability of the EVs is how much sort of range and juice are you getting out of all those raw materials that you're putting in the battery. And that is so much goes into that, the aerodynamics of the car, which that Tesla is super, I think doesn't get enough credit about. Like they have some of the best aerodynamics in the whole automotive industry and they like set records with this. Um, and that's super important, especially at highway range for efficiency of the, the car. And I also think it goes to the technology. Like when I say like you're buying another electric car, like the technology is just, you're paying more for shittier technology usually. Um, it's here's the, the data in the chart. Like they're putting, they're using more raw, raw materials so it's less sustainable and they're getting less juice out of it. Like they don't, they're not good at maximizing those raw materials. This is another, testament the model y by far the best in its class the model 3 by far the best in its class um, in terms of raw materials and this energy efficiency so once again tesla on so many different levels you're paying for just world-class technology that is second to none with a pretty huge gap origin of non-tesla produced vehicle components in the model 3 and y so you know when you think about automakers like gm and ford and, and everyone else they're like this big global supply chain they're globalizing that you know they're setting up factories in mexico to build sell our cars in the us like i think that's horrible for our jobs it just i think it makes frankly them less competitive because their pace of innovation at the manufacturing supply chain level like outs like like every other car company was like outsourcing as much as possible like only thing that gm and ford want to do is literally put their logo on the front and the mba is a i love this like mbaization of america and that's what elon and so many people talk about it's so true like all these you know they will do anything pot like you know the mba who, some guy went to harvard who just like went you know harvard mba but he went to dope ivy league school before that he's got the perfect resume they hire him to tell this them how to run this auto company like 
He's never worked at an auto company. He's never actually worked at any company or like done anything really besides build spreadsheets and PowerPoints. And then they tell you how to run your company. And this MBAization is like, we're gonna outsource this, we're gonna outsource that, we're gonna outsource there. And make this huge global network of supply chain makes it super hard to innovate, super hard to move fast. And it's like, I think worse for your people, worse for the planet. So many different levels, it's just a bad move. And so Tesla's taken, once again, how different are they? The 100% opposite approach in their DNA of we're gonna do everything as local as possible. And so vehicle manufacturing in California, North America, 70, uh, the origin of non-Tesla produced vehicle components in the three and Y, as you can see in California, 73% are from North America, others 27%. Uh, and then with China, um, this is so cool about Shanghai and China, there's so many different electronic and component suppliers there. Ice vehicle, noise pollution, right? Um, yeah. And in Shanghai, it's 86% of local parts. And this is also huge for margin. This is also huge for cash flow because Tesla can get paid for the car before they have to pay suppliers for their parts. And if their suppliers are close, um, that's huge as well. So I think there's so many, and they can work with the suppliers closely, iterate on the products faster. So a lot of different advantages there of what Tesla's doing. Covering roof space with solar panels. This is just kind of a cool fun fact. Gigafactory Nevada was designed to be covered with solar panels. Today we've installed solar panels to the capacity of 32 or 3,200 kilowatts. This installation will grow to about 24,000 kilowatts. The whole roof of the current building structure by the end of next year. This will make it the largest rooftop solar installation in the US. We are installing solar panels at other locations as well. Ooh, okay amazing charts here on the Tesla semi-truck. We all know this is coming, but even though the US vehicle fleet, just 1.1% of it is gonna be these huge trucks, um, if you look at the amount of US vehicle emissions, it's 17%. So this is why, and this is, when I went to Autonomy Day, I got the chance to like go in the Tesla semi and kind of like talk to some of the people working on it, so dope. And it was fascinating to hear them be like, look, there's not that many semi-trucks on the road, but the amount of emissions that they have is such a big impact. And so, and I also think another big part of that is road safety, um, not just because it's dangerous to have these big trucks on the road, and you know, obviously something that's bigger that's more dangerous for everyone else that's smaller on the road, but it's really hard to pass a truck um, because, or and trucks passing each other is super hard, especially up hills. Like imagine, you know, when you're on a highway and like there's two lane highway and one truck's trying to pass another truck and it's going so slow and takes like five miles, it creates this huge backup. And then you get all these drivers that are super pissed off behind it that are ready to like skirt by and cause like, another crash because they're just road rage is building. Like even though semi-trucks are just 1.1% of vehicles, not, there's 17% of emissions. They're to me way outsized. I don't have the number on it, but of safety as well on the road. And so this is an extremely important product for Tesla to commercialize. And you think about their, their goal of transitioning it, you know, why with Tesla's limited battery cell production, why is the semi-truck so high on the roadmap? This is why, because um, with a limited amount of cars, they can put a lot of, of CO2 emissions, reduce CO2 emissions by a huge, huge amount. And so I'm a huge fan of that. And I think it's also kind of like a fun fact and just kind of like F you to the whole industry that the truck, the most powerful thing that is kind of the symbol of the ICE vehicle, you know, towing huge amount of capacity, they can disrupt that and displace that with their own uh, vehicle. I just think that's incredible, honestly. And that's like a testament to how Tesla has been able to be the first real company to create the, uh, you know, battery technology and drive technology that's powerful enough um, to do better than the diesel truck. Cause that's been the roadblock. Like it's like, you know, electric cars are, cars are golf carts. They don't have enough sort of power to be able to get all the needs done for these trucking drivers. And so Tesla's about to change all that. And I think they're gonna use that crazy new motor that was in the Plaid Model S, or that's what I'm thinking. I don't know that for sure, but that would be my theory. This incredibly new energy efficient engine that creates the, the Model S Plaid, the fastest car in the world that can go like, I think it's like that crazy carbon rotor thing, right? Zero to 60 time, less than two seconds. That same technology put in the semi truck. And that's what's so cool about Tesla. Like you're buying the Plaid, you're subsidizing the development 
and the early stage limited production of that crazy technology that then they put into other products. I don't know if that'll exactly happen, but that's what they do. And so really stoked on the semi-truck, although I'm still like, where are they gonna build the semi-truck? I don't think they've officially said that. I think it's gonna be Austin, but um, yeah battery recycling this is huge and so this chart kind of says it all but um when i was at um tesla though the cybertruck event i had a really interesting conversation maybe i shouldn't name them with a tesla employee about this and i was like okay so what's good with like redwood materials what's good with you know this and that um and basically the gist was that the amount of extraction you can get from recycling a battery like once we mine you know okay so there's a billion cars on the road that's like all we need maybe 1.5 billion eventually like we have to mine a certain amount of raw materials for that but it's not like when you throw away your car you're throwing that away and you have to remine all those materials it's actually really a huge amount of those maybe 85 90 percent of what's in that battery can be reused and recycled and then once we have it that's why this chart is so dope we can just start reusing most of the materials so the amount of mining isn't like massive and growing we'll have this glut of mining to get enough raw materials out into this battery flywheel so that things can work and we can have enough for the fleet and then we'll start as these cars start coming offline we'll start recycling those batteries and so I think that's super dope and we won't need to mine as much and Tesla's really pushing that and once again pushing the pushing the pace of innovation push, pushing the R&D to be able to make this incredible technology happen and reduce the overall life systems of the vehicle like it's not just like they're cutting every single corner possible to sell you this electric car that's going to screw the planet in the long run it's like no they're thinking about what's going to happen in 20 years when that electric car is done and how if we're actually going to change the world we need to make every single car electric and minimize the impact of that production on every single level like it's a systems approach it's not just the product and i think tesla is very unique in that thinking and that ethos and that is the biggest takeaway from this corporate impact report is that it's a systems approach tesla doesn't just think about the product they think about every single thing that goes into creating the product that goes into how that product is going to impact the world we live in and i i think that's super inspiring and so okay i think i've spent enough time on this for now because we got a bunch of other stuff to cover but yeah, huge props to Martin, um, the IR team, and Elon, and, and just the, you know, the team for putting this out, because this is epic, and this is the kind of stuff that makes me proud to be a shareholder, and why I have, you know, Tesla's my biggest investment. I love the company, like, even more than just, I just love them, like, because it's just, they, they're setting the bar, um, not in terms of dopeness, I mean, they are setting the bar in terms of dope products, and fast products, and sexy products, and just bringing us in the future with technology, but they're also setting the bar on doing the right thing. Like, you just can't, there's just no price on that. Like we really need to get our shit together, hyper change the world. And if companies are not thinking about, they need just, every company needs to be thinking about stuff in a systems approach. And um, I think Tesla, by putting out this report, pushes the entire industry forward and forces everyone else to do something similar and forces everyone else to audit themselves at a new standard that they wouldn't have done before. Just another example of how Tesla's changing the world. And so epic. Tesla has registered five new versions of the Model Y for production at the Shanghai factory. And in the last conference call, they said they want to make Shanghai the new vehicle vehicle export hub. And we recently got data that in July, I want to confirm this for y'all, out of 33,000 vehicles produced, about 20,000 of them, um, or over 20,000 of them were made for export. So Tesla, like Apple, right? They have, they outsource everything to Foxconn in China who builds their things and then they ship them all around the world. Where Tesla is not, this is why Tesla should be worth more than Apple. Like they're Apple, they're the brand, they're the tech, and they're the Foxconn and they're the manufacturer. Think about how much margins they're getting there. And and think about Foxconn is like horrible. Like it's basically like, yeah, I don't want to say, yeah, it's just greasy labor, like horrible to work. Like, you, ah, man, it's like you're in prison if you work at Foxconn. Like you read the stories, we all know, right? But nobody wants to talk about it. So 
that's the shit that Apple supports with your iPhone. What does Tesla support? Super dope, forward-thinking tech jobs built by robots in China, and they're getting the margin from that. Like, I, I feel like, damn, I'm just re repeating myself over and over again, but like Tesla's literally not only doing something that's better for business and profit and shareholders, but also better for the planet here. So on, on so many different levels. And so, the, and what they're doing here is incredible because this is happening a lot faster than I thought. Um, Tesla's exporting so many vehicles. So, you know, the Fremont factory, they didn't get to build that themselves. And so they, that wasn't their first product. And, and, and then especially when you think about the Model 3 line at Fremont, how much did they learn from that? How much failures, um, you know, it's failures like the key to success, right? And so Tesla by failing and by trying so hard to get the Model 3 to work in this California factory, selling to the US with the highest cost possible, the highest employee cost, failing, learning how to build this production line, um, incredibly, did this incredible job of refining the product, or, or, which is the machine that builds the machine, their factory. And so now that they put that in Shanghai, this 2.0 Tesla factory, which is why they're building them in Austin and Berlin in two seconds, because, um, and we're also we're gonna talk about Berlin in a sec, but, um, and now it's showing up in the numbers essentially. And so we have a huge, like the cost to build the Model Y in China, way cheaper. And pro maybe just as good of a product. And if you think about they're exporting it to Europe where they're used to all these bougie, you know, BMW things, and that's where Tesla's exporting the cars built in China. So this whole thing that like made in China is not as good quality. Tesla's crushing that, that status quo and that norm. So, I mean, this is epic. And this number 20, that like more than double, it sounds like the cars sold in China, they exported from that factory. And this is something I expect to continue. And this is a clue that why, and I don't know, I tweeted at Elon and be like, yo, what's good with the Model 2 unveil or like the 25,000 mass market car um, that they keep talking about that they're gonna unveil soon. Like they have to, right? Because especially rumors are keep, and shout out to Tasmanian who's been documenting this. And I think they're, uh, shout out to Vincent, he's awesome. Um, one of my buddies, he runs Tasmanian and he's just been on the ground in China. Um, so ahead of the curve on the news and the gossip and what's good with Tesla there. And they keep reporting that the Model 2 or that 25,000 mass market car is in development. They're building factory space for it. There could be even prototypes mobbing around of it. And so it's like, damn, like this is gonna happen soon. And so you think about how Tesla's turning Shanghai into an export hub now for Model Y, imagine what they're gonna be able to do with Model 2. So I think what's gonna, what's the next big Tesla factory needs to drop is like a tripling of the size of the Shanghai plant to accommodate this Model 2 production for, you know, production initially of a million to three million units a year for global export. And so I think that's a really big idea. Um, and this is still kind of a guess, because I'm like, will they build all of them in Shanghai? Or is it worth building a portion of the Austin factory or new US factory to build a Model 2 there? This is where Elon has said in the past, it's better to like build vehicles locally as much as possible because the supply chain's shorter. Um, you don't want to ship cars all around the world. But now Tesla's ironically doing that from Shanghai. So in the Model 2, it's cheaper. So maybe, you know, the friction of, of moving a car that's that size stays the same, even though the ASP drops. So the incentive to export a vehicle that's lower price is lower. So maybe that'll play into it. But I don't know, I, I think it's really interesting. And in the long run, I wouldn't mind to see Tesla just build everything in China and export it globally if that's what works best for them. And yeah, really interesting to see that going on. Moving on from Tesla news, Airbnb reported another quarter. This is one of my favorite large, actually probably my favorite big cap tech stock. Although I did sell my Airbnb stock to buy Square because I think Airbnb is a 5X in 10 years and Square or 5X in five years. Square might be a 20X in five years. I don't know, depending on how this Bitcoin stuff works out. But yeah, honestly, I'm still torn about it. And this is the problem. Like I don't have enough money. Like. I, like, I wanna create this thing, um, shout out to one of my mentors for this idea of like the HyperChange 5, like the five most publicly traded companies that I love that I kind of support. It's not like an ETF, but it's kind of like if I was gonna make an ETF, this is what it would be. And instead of making an ETF, I'll just give it away for free on the internet. And so that's kind of my scheme. And one of them, Airbnb, Square, um, Spotify, uh, I mean, Tesla, obviously, 
and there was one more, I think Peloton, but I don't know, anything about the last one, but Square, Airbnb, Spotify, Tesla, these are definitely on the list. Um, I think they're just such amazingly run companies that are doing actually good for the planet with a really dope mission. And so that's super important. And I think Airbnb, like, I'm getting FOMO as I speak out this as I'm a shareholder. And I just went on a trip to Italy and now I'm in New York and I'm traveling and I love using Airbnb and like, it just creates incredible experiences. And I feel like you could travel in a way that you would have never been able to before experiencing the culture, living in someone's home, getting an authentic experience. Like I love going to Italy, talking to my Italian people, trying to it up with the host, seeing what's good with the local restaurant, like learning from them. Like, I don't know, I just love that. And so it gives me, and, and I think the way that Airbnb, I've made so many videos about Airbnb, so I don't need to get into it, but um, this quarter was awesome. And I think the reason also why I sold my Airbnb stock, which is killing me, is COVID. I mean, it's if COVID is coming back, and it is, and that was a thing in this results, that will dampen this immediate doubling that I thought was gonna happen in Airbnb share price, because let's face it, if you know if the government shuts down and makes us not travel, that's gonna hurt Airbnb. And so that was the gist of this report, incredible quarter. They said it was gonna be about flat from the two year ago quarter, pre-COVID norms, instead it crushed, it was ahead of that. Um, I love the way the management's taking a sandbagging tone to what they're doing. They have a huge amount of cash flow, extremely profitable business as they book ahead of time in the early part of the year, so that cash flow trend will reverse later in the year. But even so, you're looking at a company with 7.4 billion in cash, rock solid business. Um, let's just go through the results really quickly. Um, I can tell you that the raw uh, numbers here on hypercharts, hypercharts.co slash Airbnb, 83.1. Uh, nights and experiences booked, uh, you know, up huge from 28 million in Q2 2020, but that was COVID. Um, you look at revenue, 1.335 billion up from 334 million. So once again, that's like a triple, but that's the COVID. So you got to go back two years to really get a good comp. And that was uh, 1.2 billion. So 1.2 billion up to 1.335 billion. So really good two year growth there. And the gross profit as well, going from 900 million in Q2 2019 up to over 1 billion in uh, Q2 21. So amazing quarter and then you look at the operating income um, they had just a loss of 51 million dollars and in q2 in uh, 2019 they had a loss of 100 million dollars so they cut that loss in half despite just barely growing revenue so not only are they growing despite still having covid but their business is getting more profitable than ever and this is why i think airbnb covid is actually good for airbnb in the long run um because it did this g check on them that was like okay you're a startup you're getting all the hype like no 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 like you're too fat and lazy. That's what happens to all the companies with too much money that are killing it. And so it's just like Tesla with the Model 3 ramp, almost dying is gonna make you stronger. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, Kanye West, right? And so Airbnb, I think is the exact same boat here. And now they're emerging more profitable, more lean, uh, just a better company than ever out of this. And once we get out of COVID, they are just gonna hit a home run. This is a trillion dollar company. I love what they're doing. Brian Chesky changed the world for the better. And um, COVID's gonna be great for them. But, and, and if you look at the guidance, um, of what they said about this quarter or the next quarter, they're gonna have a record quarter next quarter, even versus the two year, which is 1.64 billion. So they're gonna hit above 1.64, um, 1.8 billion, 2 billion in revenue. Um, but the gross, the GBV, gross bookings value is gonna go down. What does that mean? So gross bookings value is the amount of things that get booked, but you don't go on your trip, right? You book it ahead of time. Most people do, I don't, right? I got, I always plan last minute, but most people apparently, humans, they're booking ahead of time. So Airbnb gets higher gross bookings. So the gross bookings are gonna go down because COVID's coming back, Delta. Um, but all those bookings that were made in the previous quarter are gonna be realized this quarter. So revenue is gonna be really strong, but the, the gross bookings are gonna go lower and that's gonna hinder guidance. So, and what they're also saying is like, look, like we don't know what's gonna happen. We're at the whim of, you know, COVID. And so if, if things get worse or better and governments implement more restrictions, that's going to hurt Airbnb. Um, but I think it's interesting to see that right now there's still like positive cash flow right around that net net profitability number, still able to grow. And you think about when I went to, New I'm in New York right now, it's empty. I'm in, I was in Rome. It's empty. There's no tourists. I mean, 
Airbnb is thriving on domestic business right now, despite the international travel being like goose eggs. So um, for them to be putting up these numbers now, like you're looking at a company like with one hand tied behind its back, still putting up savage numbers. Um, so it's gonna be a bumpy few quarters, but I think we will make it out of COVID. I think, you know, it'll, and as Brian Chesky said a couple conference calls ago, like this the pent up demand for travel, like, and I feel it myself, my friends, like we can't wait to go anywhere. Like I'm, I'm like, I don't even know. I mean, I'm already thinking, I just wanna live on Airbnb for like the next years of my life. Like literally just like travel the world, make videos, live in different cities. Um, and that hits really hits home for me because that's what Airbnb is talking about. Like it's not just about travel, it's about living on Airbnb. People aren't just traveling. They, they want to literally live for a month in this city, live for a month in that city, longer term stays. And so um, I think Airbnb is big and powerful as it seemed. It's still in the early days, love what they're doing. And this quarter was a huge step in the right direction. And it just sucks that, you know, it's not Airbnb's fault that the COVID exists, right? Um, but yeah, so I, anyway, Airbnb, all said and done, amazing quarter, amazing company, huge fan, major phone might on the stock. Um, okay, another thing I wanted to get into, and this is kind of a random one. Ooh, startup of the week. Let's let's do this. It's gonna be fun. Pipe. So Pipe, the Nasdaq for revenue. I think this is such a cool company, and I'm biased, totally totally biased, because I'm an investor in this company. Shout out to Neve, Shrug Capital, got in through them. Pipe transforms recurring revenue into upfront capital for growth without debt or dilution. I the concept of this, they've un, they've created an entirely new category of funding your startup. And so, um, you know, all these startups that are SaaS companies, like super predictable revenue, I'm gonna charge you ten, nine, hypercharts, right? Love hypercharts, 10 bucks a month, I pay it, super predictable. And so, but and but you wanna grow, but I'm I, like, how do, you know, banks aren't gonna give me a loan. I don't wanna get VC funding because they're gonna take a huge chunk of my company. So this is a huge problem that every sort of recurring revenue startup struggles with, right? And so Pipe is like, wait, we can actually pay you, we can use our numbers and use our magic math to figure out how recurring your revenue is by looking at all your bank statements and basically pay you upfront for that year's worth of customer revenue. And then as that revenue comes in, you pay off this debt. So it's, and that way you don't have to dilute your cap table. Um, it's debt that gets paid off automatically just by your revenue. So, and I love the quote that I talked to Harry about this in the CEO's suit, this just super dope guy, incredibly forward thinking, hustler, mover and shaker is just kind of disrupting this whole industry. And he's awesome. And he's like, dude, what's the TAM for revenue? Like who even knows? Like how do you even put that in a box, right? And he just had a tweet um, like yesterday that I wanted to, uh, oh man, I, lost, I had it pulled up. I don't have internet, but I lost the tweet. It's something like, um, we did more transactions today than we did in all of 2020 or something, or more was traded on our platform. I mean, the growth of this thing, like y'all should, not only is this just trading a new category, but to, from a startup case study perspective, I mean, this launched in like, I think about a year ago, they, they publicly launched, the company's maybe two years old. They already hit a $2 billion valuation a few months ago. It's probably even higher now. And I invested the round before 2 billion. So I'm pretty, I'm hyped on it, honestly, but, um, should have been more, right? <sighs> Major FOMO, but, um, nah, but. I mean, I've never seen a company grow this fast, like in terms of valuation, like they're, they're, it's, it's almost shattering records. So from that perspective, it's really interesting to see how much this is blowing up and how quickly, um, and how much traction they're getting. And I'm actually on the back end of talking to different startups and through my work with HyperGwap and, and meeting with startup founders and stuff, I'm actually referring or thinking about referring a ton of companies to pipes. So that's another reason I'm so uh, bullish on this company and product is like, I know every half the startups I talk to are like, we hate VCs. We're tired of working with them. Um, you know, we don't know banks get what we're doing. Um, but it's so clear that if we just had a little bit of money to sell the product, we could do that. And so, 
um, like Tesla tequila, for instance. That you know, think about if you were the Tesla tequila company and you wanted to get inventory to sell your Tesla tequila. It's a huge amount of capital up front, and you know it's going to sell out. But no bank's going to give you a loan for that. How are you going to get financing for that? You don't want to raise a funding round just to dilute for for inventory. There's so many different use cases of this, and that's what's so interesting about Pipe is that it started out as sort of the SaaS company because SaaS most predictable revenue stream. That's what we're going to securitize and sell. But then even as a month or two ago, when I was talking to Harry. Sorry, there's a honk. Even a month or two ago, it was already 25% of what was happening on Pipe wasn't SaaS. It was other types of recurring revenue businesses. So they're really trying to expand way beyond just recurring software revenue and are doing that. And so I think it's really, it's, when you start thinking like VC management fees is another thing that they got um, on their platform. Um, I just think there's a lot of cool outside the box ways this could get used. And we're still super early, but this is like one of the hottest, coolest startups I'm following right now. So I kind of want to just put it on your radar and also say that if you are a startup founder or you work for a startup where you're like, wait, like we have pretty predictable recurring revenue. We love to get paid up front for it. Um, let's use pipe, like hit them up. I'll put the website below. Like you should sign up. This is super dope. Um, and I think in, at the minimum, look into this because this is a crazy category, category defining new option for startup financing. And I'm so passionate about it because I think VCs, you know, I'm disrupting VCs with Hyperguap and I'm sick. VCs are whack. Like let's talk to any startup founder. It's a nightmare to raise capital. It's a nightmare to deal with VCs. And so to have another option here that doesn't dilute them, that helps founders is like, really dope and inspiring and accelerate progress in the entire startup ecosystem. And on the flip side, now this is a new institutional class of assets people can invest in. So you have all these big companies that are like, wait, we can invest in this. So, and the way it works is like, they'll pool all this revenue, pool it, anonymize it, and then sell it out in different risk tranches, I believe. And so one of the fastest growing fintech startups in the world, creating an entirely new category of startup financing run by a savage founder. You should go check it out. Super, super dope. Uh, interesting story to follow in fintech. Okay. Next piece of news I wanted to say, Traeger Grills. This is just a fun one. Like there's so many kind of fun facts within this one. First of all, the CEO is Jeremy Andrus, which is a dope guy. Shout out to him because he was the CEO of Skull Candy, which was like one of the first companies I invested in when I was like 18 and I was writing uh, articles on Seeking Alpha. And I actually got a meeting with him in New York at the stock exchange when I was like a freshman at NYU. And he met up with me and we like worked on an article because I was writing about Skull Candy at the time and I was a shareholder. Like, it, I don't know, Skull Candy, it was whatever. Like, I mean, they cool, had cool headphones at the time, but it didn't really work out as what I was expecting, but that's business you know but he was awesome I loved him and I just I, I don't know um, so I kind of always had a soft spot in my heart for like the CEO who was like down to meet with me and help and just seem really smart and cool and then he eventually moved on to Traeger Grills right which is like the company that Joe Rogan made famous shout out to my cousin Josh too who loves his Traeger like um, and my homie Joe I think has a Traeger like everybody who has a Traeger that loves it like this grill where you put like this artisanal wood in to smoke your meats the way you want um, and I just it's an amazing product. Like people can't shut up about it, kind of like Tesla. And so they IPO with the SPAC. So one good thing about this SPAC boom is it's reduced the friction on these companies to go public. Like, yes, you had just shitty scam companies like Nikola. Oh my God, let me get to the Nikola contract in a minute. But um, who are able to SPAC and raise money? There are total frauds that are going to scam investors, um, even like Lucid. <clears throat> Whoops, wasn't supposed to say that. But I'm actually going to try and go to the Lucid store while I'm in New York, see if it's open. If you know if it's open, leave it in the comments below. But um, Traeger, dope. There's actually a bunch of dope comp little companies that because of this SPAC boom and because of this new, you know, sort of accelerated progress on just how easy it is to IPO are able to IPO. And so love the progress there. And one of them is Traeger, this grill company. And I was reading their S1, um, which is fascinating. And I think they're only about a $3 billion company. And I was looking at the financials. I was like, bro, these guys are crushing it. 2020, 554 million in revenue, um, 235 million in gross profit. 
60 million in operating income, like super profitable, over 10%, 11, 12% operating margins. They're as profitable as Tesla was last quarter. I mean, and they're only trading at what? Like seven times trailing revenue, um, you know? And then earnings this year, maybe 30 times earnings if they do 100 million. Like, I was like, damn, this is actually a pretty reasonable valuation for a company that customers love, where the CEO is super dope. Um, and you look about that, the TAM, that total addressable market, that's the one thing I'm kind of, I, how big can a, a barbecue company get, right? Like. They say that only 2% of households um, in the U.S. that could have barbecues have Traegers, so they're only 2% penetrated in the U.S., but I'm not convinced of that. They say that they're only 3% penetrated for everybody who has a grill, but I think it's a little too bougie. Like, you have a small apartment, you want a smaller grill, you've got to deal with the wood pellets thing. It's kind of for aficionados, but maybe they're going to commercialize and bring down this technology, you know, artisanal grilling for the masses, you know, hyper-changing that. <laughs> um, but... Um, yeah, and I do think this kind of goes in line with the way that I think about the food industry as well, because, you know, shout out to all my people who are reduced vegetarians like myself, or like, how can we reduce the carbon footprint of what we eat? Like, golly, grilling burgers isn't helping us. Like, But I think it, in some ways, the culture that Traeger promotes of food, of caring about your food, um, making it artisanal, making, like, enjoying it, um, you're not gonna buy a crappy piece of meat and put it in a Traeger. Like, you don't wanna buy the factory farm shitty stuff. You wanna buy a good pasture-raised, great farm. Uh, cow or brisket or whatever to put in your Traeger that's supporting the good part of the food ecosystem and and it's it's not all or none like it's not we're not going to stop eating meat altogether I think what needs to happen is we need to stop all factory farming we're going to have you know 95% reduction in the amount of meat in the world um, but the meat that does exist will be cooked way more artisanally and will be way more enjoyed and will be taxed extremely higher and that just is the reality. It will turn into extreme luxury good if governments can get their shit together and tax the negative externalities of that industry. And so that is what it is. And that's another reason, I don't know, am I gonna buy Traeger stock? No, because it's not that exciting. It's not changing the world in the way I want. And I do think that this reduction of meat consumption overall could hurt them. But then it's like, well, yo, you seen that grilled cauliflower steak trend, the grilled watermelon trend? Are people gonna be using artisanal wood pellets to grill their watermelon steaks? Maybe. But even so, I don't know, I just thought this was a cool one to mention because I love this little company. And I, when I looked at the financials, I was like, damn, like they're actually killing it with the financials, like making money, like growing like crazy, like people love the product. Like this is a really cool one to follow. And just an interesting business case study um, that they're public. Like now that they're public, we can all see the financials, we can listen to the conference calls. Um, so I'm a big fan of that. Oh, okay, so last thing I guess I'll rant about today is um, the market caps. One thing I thought about Traeger and I was trying to do their homework on them, right? Where's the share count? Like I found the 3 billion thing because I Google on Google, Google Finance said the market cap was 3 billion. Do I know if that's right? Nope. So this is like the biggest, and you y'all are watching HyperChange, so you probably know the difference, but like how many share, like everyone thinks like, oh, Airbnb is 150 per share. So it's 150. That's more expensive than, you know, Tesla's 700. So that's more, you know, it's like, it's just the dumbest misconception in finance is market capitalization versus share count. Like how much is the company worth is amount of shares times price for share. It's not like every company has a million shares. There's, it's a randomized number. Some company has a million shares, some company has a billion shares. You know, you don't know. So you have to adjust the share price for the amount of shares. I know this sounds simple, but like, it just boggles my mind that this is not a status quo. And I think this is the biggest friction in mainstream people understanding finance. And so this is something I've been thinking about, maybe you can help me out, um, is how do we solve this problem? And hypercharts, I think, shout out to Mo, and what we're doing with hypercharts is huge because that's the first thing we put on every company's page is the price per share and market cap, showing you what is the company worth, the financials, all relative to you know the overall market cap. Nothing's in price per share. Price per share is the most dumbest bullshit number I've ever heard of on the planet. If you watch CNBC, they're going to tell you to care about it. That's another reason why CNBC is, is just morons. But I think this is, I, I don't know. I just, 
I can't come down, like the amount of people who are like really smart and are getting into investing but still cannot wrap their head around the market capitalization versus share price um, thing is just by mind. So I don't even know why I'm saying that, but that's just something I've been thinking a lot about. And I think the onus is on the FinTech companies of tomorrow to make this easier. And as well as these companies on your investor relations page to put your share count. Here's how many shares, here's our price. Here's how many shares we have. Bam, here's our revenue. Like. Why is that so hard to get? And so that's why we created hypercharts to do that and solve that problem. Um, but anyway, that's, yeah, maybe not a great place to end it, but ooh, okay, actually I'll end it with this like savage little moonshot that um, one of my subscribers sent me. I'm forgetting his name right now, but shout out to him because this was so dope. I'm gonna make a whole moonshot about it right now. I'm just gonna give you a little preview just because, you know, we're scheming right here. Um, imagine what's the next thing with Tesla vision? How do we get the humanoid robots? How do we solve a real big problem with the Tesla AI shit, right? What if you had, you know, what are all these sort of mundane tasks and jobs that are being automated, um, that we can automate one step at a time? How do we automate them? Like, you know, I don't know, like you're moving boxes, you're, you're shipping stuff, you're driving a truck, you're doing this, you're doing that. Like, um, maybe even being a waiter or waitress or bartender. How do we start getting robots to learn how to do those things? And you might be like, wait, you're putting people out of business. Like you're, you're stopping jobs. Like, first of all, there's not, nobody wants to work. I don't know if you've noticed, but like every restaurant in New York is short staffed. Nobody wants to work. This is a shortage that's coming. The biggest problem we might face if AI doesn't kill us, population collapse, right? So it's like, damn, like, how are we gonna solve this? Well, we need to have fleets of humanoid robots doing these tasks. Like we're so lazy. We just want to press a button and get our burger. Like if we want to keep doing that, like humans don't want to walk and give us our burger anymore. Like we need to have robots doing that. And, and so I just think there's a, like Japan, like there's all these old people um, and there's not enough young people to take care of them. They need robots. And so that's why they're pushing forward for it. So how do we solve this problem? What if you had like glasses with Tesla vision, snap spectacles idea here. What if you had glasses with cameras, Tesla vision, right? and you have like this body suit, maybe you just start with gloves that have feedback and sensors. And so when you do your job, you know, you're picking up boxes, you're moving that, you're doing that, you're training the AI to, 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 to like basically learn how to do your job. And so, and you might be like, wait, why would people want to train the AI to learn how to do your job? Like, oh, I'm going to bartender, I'm going to make this drink. Like all of a sudden the AI is showing you how to do that. Or you're at a cafe and it's like, oh, you know, make the cappuccino, put the button here, press this, do that, move it here, give it to the person, call their name. Like, Maybe they have sound built into these classes too. I don't know, this is a crazy moonshot idea I haven't fully fleshed out and I'm gonna, I wanna do an episode on it, but you get what I'm saying. Like you could, by putting these sensors before the full robot on the humans doing the job, we could train the AI and the robots to figure out how to do these jobs by not this like, you know, sort of like, it's kind of like a different idea than like starting from scratch and just having the robot do everything. It's like having the human train the robot, which I think is kind of like what Tesla's doing with driving. And so, I just think this is such a powerful idea. And even beyond that, shout out to this hyperchanger. This idea was insane. I'm going to put his Twitter handle below or if he lets me, but um, it was that you could get like a dividend. So if you, and you're like, okay, well, I don't want to train the AI. It's going to put me out of business. Wait, you're training the AI and there's a smart contract with, by the amount of data you contribute, by the amount of edge cases you solve, you are getting rights to the dividends from that robot fleet in the future. It's like a form of UBI that you're earning by training the robots to do your job. So if I train the robots to deliver all these Amazon packages, cause I'm an Amazon package deliverer and I do the best job with the best edge cases, I'm gonna get a bunch of these tokens that will then create revenue because the robots will be doing the work and give a portion of that revenue to me for helping to train them so I can have a retirement once the robot takes over. This idea, is, it blew my mind. It was so dope. And so think about, I don't know, I'm just gonna leave y'all with that little end. I'm gonna, I should start doing like a crazy moonshot scheme like that at the end of every video. So um, yeah, if you're also another Patreon, 
uh, member who has a scheme like that, please let me know. And also Patreon members, hit me up with an email, galileorussell.gmail.com. Tell me your name and that you're a Patreon member. And if you have something that you want me to cover, um, and I'll try to do it in the next week's episode or like a scheme sesh or anything like that. Um, yeah, because this was just such a dope idea. I loved it. This is Hyper Change. See y'all next time. Have an amazing day. Ciao.